So I welcome you to Heart City Church. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verses 15 to 17. And then we're going to jump a little bit ahead to chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now I want to begin, though, this morning with a phrase to help us to get into our text. Ready? Three, two, one. Ready or not, here I come. Sandy almost jumped out of her chair right there. Why was that? Because Sandy's inner child was triggered. Hide and seek had started, and you weren't hiding, were you? We've all played that game, and I'll confess I've actually played that quite a few times in the last eight years. It's a popular game for foster children entering into a new home. But I've discovered not every child is good at hide and seek. I've played with some really, really bad hiders. I remember one little boy we had who wanted to walk in the room he was hiding in, he'd immediately start giggling. Remember another kid who would hide under something, but he'd always leave a foot or a hand sticking out. But there's one game of hide and seek that takes the cake when it comes to bad hiding. It was my turn to seek. I sat down on the couch and I said, count it down, three, two, one. Ready or not, here I come. And I opened my eyes to find sitting next to me this two-year-old little girl on the couch with a big grin on her face and her eyes closed tightly and she said, can you see me? Can you see me? You see, she assumed that if she couldn't see me, I couldn't see her, which left me with a decision, right? What was I supposed to do? How was I to respond to this little girl? Should I tell her how silly she was being? Not a chance. I knew exactly what I needed to do for this little girl in this moment. I said, no, I can't see you. Where are you? Where are you? Welcome to the first game of hide and seek. Now hear the word of our God from Genesis chapter two, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now moving ahead to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing that you are the God who seeks us. And we ask and pray right now that we will be willing to come out wherever we're at, discover your grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Where are you? These are God's first words to the first sinners. This is incredible. Playing hide and seek is God's first response to the first rebels. God becomes at this moment the divine seeker. And this raises all kinds of questions. One that came to mind first for me was, remember our first John series last year? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We learned that God is an almighty being to whom every human owes their existence and he is perfectly holy, which means as creator, his universe operates under a moral standard. There's a black and white, there's a right and wrong. And these rebels just broke his one rule, his one prohibition, and let sin pollute his perfect planet. Why doesn't God simply just stomp on these insubordinate beings wrecking his world? Like we would if we saw some ants or some bug, you know, bringing some destructive insect into our home. Wouldn't we just stomp on them? That's a good question. Here's another one. Why does he ask this question? God's all seeing, right? I mean, he's a tough guy to play hide and seek with. <laughs> he's not struggling to find Adam. Adam doesn't answer, over here, God, we're to the left over in the bushes. God sees them and he knows what they've done. So why doesn't God say, get out here right now? Why does he enter into this game of hide and seek? Well, the answer to that first question, why God doesn't destroy, is he still loves us and wants our best. And the answer to why he starts seeking is that God has to make the first move. Because our impulse is to hide immediately. God must call us to himself. Last week, we started a series on worship in the church. And we're basically, we're walking through our bulletin, the order of worship. Why do we do what we do here? We started last week with actually what is Sunday worship and we talked about how we're actually entering into a greater reality ultimate reality we start every Sunday with a moment of meditation as a prelude to what's about to take place here Hebrews 12 taught us last week that we actually leave earth and we enter into a greater spiritual heavenly reality and who is the audience of this service not us, yes, Sandy, God. God Almighty is the audience. And this really needs to be stressed in our day because we hear a lot about seeker-sensitive churches. Churches that are, they know there's God-seekers out there and they're trying to meet folks where they're at. And I appreciate what they're doing, 
a lot. And we can do that also so long as we remember that we human beings only seek God at his initiative. God is the first seeker and our call to worship, our call to worship to start reinforces this truth. You and I, we may experience ourselves as growing curious about God, taking steps to seek him. But whatever events, people, longings, dissatisfactions begin to move us to seek God, guess what? Those were initiated by God the Holy Spirit in the first place. In fact, write down Psalm 14 or Psalm 53, and we read that God looks down from heaven at all of humanity, and guess what? No one seeks for him. Yes, if you're seeking God, that's great, but give God the credit and ask him to keep seeking you so that you will keep seeking him. See, you are the little s seeker, and God is the capital S seeker. Let's look again for a final time at the verse, January verse of the month, Hebrews 11.6. You find it right underneath your sermon text here. Let us read together. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I need to work on that. Seek him. We actually see that we're the seekers in this verse. But think about this. The verse itself is God's prompt for you to come expectantly to him expecting a reward. You see, worship always begins with God's invitation for us to come, to draw near, to stop hiding, to seek him. So here's our theme this morning. God seeks us in our hiding because he loves us and wants the best for us. God seeks us in our hiding because he loves us and wants the best for us. Three questions we'll walk through. Why do we hide? Why does God seek? And how can we truly know that God loves us wherever we are? So why do we hide? This was not the normal. There were no hide-and-seek games in Genesis 1 and 2. We read, actually, the man and woman were naked and unashamed. This is hugely important. They were naked and unashamed. They were vulnerable and comfortable in their own skin before God and each other. But then Genesis 3, the serpent, who is Satan, shows up and he says, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And we really need to lean in on this because this is the start of everything going wrong. What's our enemy doing with this question? Satan doesn't actually provide them with any evidence, any logical argument against trusting God. He begins with a cynical comment, mockery, sarcasm. Sarcasm used to overpower her trust. You know, a mockery is a powerful thing, even though it's actually based on nothing. Listen to the great atheists of our day, just how they tone. There's no real evidence. It's the mockery. It's the sarcasm. It's not an argument, what the devil brings here. It is an attitude that creates an atmosphere of doubt. It's an attitude. You probably remember as kids, a friend coming over to your house and saying, your mom said you can't do this, really? 
and suddenly it occurs to you for the first time that your mom may not have your best interests at heart. Did God really say, you can't eat trees in your own garden? Really? Here's the start of our hiding. Here's where we start to lose God. We start to question him. And when we do, we leave a place of trust and we enter, we take the seat of judgment. The devil encourages Eve to stand over God's word, given in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, and to judge its merit. And look what it does. It leads her to question everything she knows about God's goodness. She becomes suspicious at this moment that she's missing out. She's now suspicious of God's goodness. Did you hear that in her response? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you see how doubt of God's goodness has already crept in? That neither shall you touch it. Did you see that in Genesis 2, 15 to 17? She adds something that God never said. God never said they could not touch the tree. God never gave a prohibition about not touching. He only said not eating. Adam and Eve could have walked up to that tree in front of the serpent and carved a big heart with A and E in there, right? They could have built a tree house up in this tree. They could have hung a rope swing and said, Satan, look at all the good things God's given us to do with this tree. But instead, Eve took this hint of doubt and she began to run with it which gives the devil an opening, which he immediately pounces on, saying, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there it is, the lie that blew us to bits and continues to hurt and haunt humanity. Here's the lie. Don't believe God, and here's why. God doesn't want the best for you. You'd be a better master of your ship, a better captain of your soul. Screw up your courage and take the throne. It's your life. It's now or never. Only then, when you do that, you'll be able to reach your full potential. And she saw that the, what was attractive was delicious. Had the potential to bring her true fulfillment. And she took and ate, and she gave some to Adam, who's right there the whole time, apparently. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Everybody's got something to hide. John Lennon saying that, and here's where it began. When they sinned, what Ed Welsh calls shame consciousness entered in. This is the shame. The shame that comes from sin needs to be seen as suspicion. Remember, it started with suspicion, but suspicion on steroids. They now can't stand to be seen by one another, and they immediately start to cover themselves with fig leaves, so these leaf garments. But notice that covering is not enough when God then arrives. Because now they run and hide in the trees. Why is that? Why can't they now stand to be seen by God? They lost their original glory, their original righteousness. 
and they know God's eyes can see right through them. Before sin, they were naked and unashamed. They could be known, known, truly known without fear. They could be radically vulnerable and completely comfortable at the same time. Can you imagine? But after sin, they cannot handle being under the gaze of God for fear of not being accepted. And to a lesser degree, lesser degree, each other. The gaze of now other humans causes concern. You and I, I've heard a lot of people deny this, it's not true. You and I are constantly thinking about what others might see when they look at us. Why is that? Genesis 1, actually. People are made in God's image. So the eyes of the image bearer on you are a reflection of holy God's eyes on you. You ever been unsettled by someone's gaze? <laughs> I remember when I was first preaching this text years and years ago, I was driving and I heard some song from the 80s I hadn't heard in a long time and I started singing it. You know, one of those songs just like, oh, this is so great. I can't remember. I haven't heard it in 20 years. I'm busy singing. I'm at a stoplight and all of a sudden I just feel it. Somebody's sitting next to me watching me. I couldn't wait for that light to turn green. I had to go. Stop looking at me. I was so embarrassed. I'm just ah. How about you? You ever been uncomfortable as someone sizes you up? It all began right here. After they sin, they're traumatized that someone might discover something about them and then be able to hurt them. Because they don't believe that God or others could love them if they know the truth. And that's why we are the way we are. All the suffering and shame and sin in our lives comes from this. We inherited their sin, by the way. That's why we keep hiding. We keep the cycle just perpetuating. But friends, we were made to be known truly known and loved. But most of us today think the best we can get is loved, be loved, but not known, not truly known. Billy Joel got this, how we're all liars who fear being known. You can have the love you need to live, but if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems to be so hard to give. Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honestly is hardly ever heard. And mostly what I need from you. What's Billy Joel saying there? I can get just enough love to get by to survive, but he and his lover, whoever that is, and no one else for that matter can be honest about who they truly are. Yet he knows that's what he needs most. Somehow deep down he knows that. Why? because it's unsafe, it's scary. <laughs> if we're known, which is so ironic, if you think about it. The devil said, be courageous, be the master of your own ship, captain of your soul, and they bravely cast off to create their own reality, and now they're terrified. They feel inadequate, they feel small, they're cowardly, and they can't stand to be exposed. And then God shows up and <laughs> all the more terror. They run off and hide in the bushes. They did what was right in their own eyes, and now deep down they know they're all wrong. And we feel the same too because we're under God's gaze. We sow fig leaves, we hide. What comes next in the story? More hiding. In fact, that's what comes next in this story. They do more hiding. Think about what they do when God shows up and they start talking. Excuses. Ah, the woman you gave me, God, 
The serpent tricked me. They start pointing the finger, explaining away everything. More and more words. That'll fix it. And the blame game goes on today, right? We blame each other for a problem. We blame others. We blame mental illness. We blame our upbringing. All fig leaves. Some of us work all the time, right? We're constantly accomplishing, doing things with those we can help. That's our cover, right? I'm living a good life. We can't stop, though, right? It never is. The cycle never stops. Some of us are workaholics. What's that? Fig leaves. Some of us go to church. We pay our tithe. We look down on others who aren't as who are bigger sinners than us, like the Pharisee, right? Thanking God that I'm not like that tax collector over there. What's that? A big fig leaf show before God. Yeah, some of us need to repent of our righteousness as much as everyone else needs to repent of their unrighteousness. And perhaps you gave up on God long ago. <laughs> You're a skeptic. I just I don't I don't believe in you, God. I reject you. Deep down, you still know there's something that's not right. You feel guilty. You feel ashamed. You feel anxiety. As our culture continues, the more and more reject God, we're in a mental health crisis. Why do you think? Folks on drugs now trying to numb themselves. Why? Because none of us can escape the gaze. I encourage you today, as Rex said from Psalm 95, not to harden your heart. Take in the good news. The good news is that God is seeking you. He is still seeking today, seeking you. So let's move on to the next point. Why does God seek us? Well, to get this, you're going to have to take up the posture we talked about last week of a little child in trust. You've got to become like a little child in trust. There's something that kids can teach us because they all run and hide. But you know what? What would happen if you just stayed there in the living room, turned on the TV? Huh? They want you to find them. They believe when they go off and hide that someone cares enough that he's going to seek them out, he or she. That's why they do it. We've got to believe that God is seeking us right where we are. That's our God. His first words, the first sinners are, where are you? Words not to expose them, but to call them back to trust. I mean, imagine being Adam and Eve. They've just undergone the greatest soul trauma ever. You and I have not known perfect innocence like Adam and Eve, not for a second. And Eve, there she is, trembling in fear, and then she hears that familiar voice. Where are you? Why does God do this? Please get this. He's not asking for his sake. He's asking for their sake. <laughs> He's encouraging Adam to share in detail where he now has found himself. God is asking Eve in order to restore her dignity. God is recognizing Adam and Eve's ability to respond to him. We start worship with God's call to come, come out wherever we are, because folks in our world need to know they still have dignity. God still cares. He's waiting patiently wherever they are, and he wants the best for them. But in order to get there, Adam has to tell his story to actually tell God what he already knows. And we'll get more to this next week when we talk about confession. But this is actually how we find out we're loved. The only way to know unconditional love is total exposure. Think about it. The only way to know God's unconditional love is total exposure, no fig leaves. My point is that there is a knowing of God 
and of his love for you that can only come by realizing you are known by God. Here's what I mean. You can go to church for lots and lots of years, and you can learn all kinds of truths. You can memorize this whole Bible. You can quote 50 verses of evidence of how he forgives sinners. Know the facts. But those facts don't move you towards trust. That's a salvation security based on evidence, not relationship. And facts are good and necessary, yes. But there's a knowing that it only comes when you get vulnerable. When you hear God call and you come out and say right where you're at, what you've done, and you discover incredibly, I still love you. I've never stopped loving you. That's knowing God relationally. And then, guess what? The facts reinforce this relationship. When you know you're loved right where you're at, wherever you are. You ever met this on the horizontal level? Maybe you remember a time when you just really blew it. Maybe you made a huge mistake. Maybe you're up on stage with your fly open the whole time. Maybe you missed the game-winning shot. And a dad or a friend came up to you afterwards and said, I saw you. That was rough. But you matter to me. I'm still with you. I care and I still accept you. You ever had someone do that to you? Then it just melts you. To be naked in front of the world and fully known and yet still loved, that's heaven, friends. And it makes us able to survive and thrive on this earth. This is what God does. He calls us to come to him in all of our mess and to find that we're still loved. Tim Keller writes, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. God sees us and still seeks us. This is the story of the whole Bible. Genesis 16, an abused teenager named Hagar is running. She's off in the desert. God goes seeking her. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? He wants to know it all. And Hagar ends up saying, you are the God who sees me. And this realization equips her to go back to return to the people of God. I'm going to move on to our third point. So God comes and finds us, loves us wherever we're at. And I want us to think about what it meant for God to step into that garden. Because that first step that he took meant that he was coming at great cost to himself. Because the moment God took that first step, he was committing himself to humanity and what it would take to save us. And what was that cost? The cost of his own son. Jesus, the son of man, that was the plan all along. He sent him to 
come, remember our Luke series, 19.10, Luke 19.10, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. In Jesus, God came to look for those who'd been hiding for so long that they've gotten completely lost. Actually, that passage, you remember where it came from, the story? It's the wee little man, Zacchaeus. Where is he? Hiding up in a tree. <laughs> he was a despised tax collector, short in stature. <laughs> He's up there, afraid to be seen. And Jesus saw. Ah, God's at work in your life. I've come seeking you. He says, and I like to sing the song, but I won't. Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus found salvation. Friends, this is the story again and again and again. It's the story of Peter. Upon realizing who Jesus is, that the eyes of God are upon him, what does he say? He falls down to shame and he says, Depart from me, for I am a wicked, evil man. And Jesus says, Thank you for telling me your story. Thank you for being real with me. Come, follow me. Think about what God did in sending Jesus and how Jesus reveals himself. Jesus went to prostitutes, demon-possessed people, Samaritans, all the rejects, no matter how bad, wherever they were at. And he said what we start every service with, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I love how Jesus holds out his heart here. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God sent his son Jesus, and Jesus came and made himself accessible to everyone. Everyone, wherever they were. Joel, Pastor Joel, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. Ha! Jesus was born in no good Nazareth, John 1.46. I'm a poor person, poverty. Huh. Jesus lived as a homeless person, Matthew 8.20. I'm not that smart, Joel. Oh, Jesus didn't have a college degree either, <laughs> John 7.15. I feel ugly about myself. I don't like my appearance. Well, Jesus was average looking at best, Isaiah 53.2. Jesus came into our world with none of the fig leaves that everybody here craves. None of it. Because he wanted, as he holds out his heart to show you, he is the most accessible person to ever walk the planet. That's who Jesus Christ is. He came seeking us. And he wanted us to see we don't need to hide anymore. We can come out. We can find cover. You see, God saw from the start that our fig leaves weren't going to work, which is why... He sent Jesus to provide the cover we need so we can finally rest. And our need is why God took the initiative after Adam and Eve failed the first tree test. Well, God sent Jesus to cover our debt. He did it by passing a second tree test. Whereas God said, pass the tree test, Adam, and you will live. And he failed. God said, pass the tree test, Jesus, my son and you will die so that they might live. Praise be to Jesus, he succeeded. Father God gave his own son to die in order to cover 
all your debt. Jesus' death, his death on the cross is the proof of God's love for you. The cross shows that all your guilt, all your shame is known and God still loves you. Some people, I run them pretty frequently, they only want a God who loves us, but would never go to such extremes. Horrible. That kind of sacrifice. My God is only a God of love, Joel. Good luck with that. You will never be changed by a God who loves you at no cost to himself. But if you know that God loved you at this kind of cost, it'll change you forever. And you can run your race no matter how hard it is. And you'll never be able to come out of hiding without that kind of, that kind of God who truly seeks us. God wants to cover us. And we all need to be covered. We just need to admit it. Another foster child that we had, I remember I would read him a story every night. Then he'd want me to put his covers on and tuck him in just a certain way. He just had to have that. He could have done it himself, but he knew something that we all need to know. We need someone else to cover us, to take care of us, that we know that we're protected, we're safe, we're loved. There's a lot of people that sadly don't want that cover, God's cover. And they choose covers that will not suffice. That's why they're constantly running and run themselves ragged, finding their identity elsewhere. But you, you need God's covering. Because on that final day, God will return. And remember what Scripture says to folks who rejected Christ? What will they call out for? For the mountains and the rocks to cover them. We all need a covering. And God wants to provide it. And that is why he calls you to come just as you are. And let yourself be known and let yourself be loved. And no matter where you're at. Psalm 95, we started with that today. Three times. God says, come. Oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Move down to, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Move down to the next part. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Three times God says come, and it's actually three different words in the Hebrew. Because God knows he has to call us different ways. We start every week with a call to worship because from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, God's calling, where are you? Revelation 22, and the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The whole Bible is God calling you to come to Him. It's about a personal invitation to a relationship with a living God. A thousand times in the Old Testament, come. Seven hundred times in the New Testament, come. God really wants you to come. If I called you up seventeen hundred times this week, said, will you come over to my house? Will you come over to my house? Will you come over to my house? Will you come? I'm inviting you. Will you come? Different ways every time. Come, come, come. Would you have any reason to say, Joel doesn't want me to come to his house? I won't do that. Don't worry. But that's how badly God wants us to come. And that's why we start every week with God's call for you to come. He's taken an issue. Drive to yourself.
And I know it's scary to come to the living God. But I'm going to close with what Jesus said in John 6, 37. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And a good paraphrase of that is, stop playing hide and seek. Come out, come out, wherever you are, and you will find what? That you're greatly loved. And I'll close with this gospel assurance from a tinker turned pastor. But I'm a great sinner, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have nothing good to bring with me, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. Is that good news? Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for seeking us out wherever we've been, wherever we're at right now, and that you will continue to seek us out for all our days here on this earth. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made clear by your cross that you, in fact, are for us, you know us, and you want to bring us into your glory to be seated at that wonderful table so that we may rejoice and enjoy you for all of eternity. We ask and pray by your Holy Spirit that if we're afraid to come out of hiding, that we will begin to enter that place of trust, to take off our fig leaves, to discover the reality that we are truly known and greatly loved. And may we go out there into a world of people wearing fig, suit, fig leaf suits, and may we be willing to be real and genuine with them and share the good news, the fact that they are known and loved, that they may come to know you. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.